Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. Good evening to everyone. It's great to see you this evening. I feel like it's, it's been a while since this class. It was like longer than two weeks. I'm going to have to be reminded where we are. There you go. I, the book of Isaiah. I do have handouts from two weeks ago, just a few left. Uh, actually, just three, if somebody needs one or wasn't here two weeks ago when we started. Because we are going to wrap up that section. Sure. Anyone else? Really glad we have the opportunity to meet together this evening. And I know we'll be blessed by our study. Let's uh, open up in prayer. Our Holy Father, you're the source of life, eternal life. And we're so thankful to be your children as those who are in Christ. We ask that you'll bless our study of Isaiah this evening and the rich meanings and prophecies and uh, foretellings of um, the, the glories that have come through your kingdom, through the church, through the Messiah, and uh, through the salvation that you've brought to uh, available to all, all mankind. We ask that you'll bless our members who are not able to be with us, uh, who may be online listening. Uh, we do want to remember uh, Jean Clem and also Sister Jean Mathias. She recovers. There may be many others that uh, need your care at this time, and we ask that you please be with them and those caring for them. In Christ's name, amen. So in the book of Isaiah, who remembers what we started on last time? Chapters 13 through 27. Great. Oh. I think I may have lost link. There we go. Thank you. So this is our roadmap of Isaiah. And we began this section last time we had our class, and I know that's been a long two weeks. This section, 13 through 27, we're going to, not going to be able to cover in our class tonight in any level of detail, but with the nature of this survey class, we are going to cover parts of it and then go on to the next section. And so we're really only going to be able to touch on three or four concepts that I want to bring up, and I actually want to set a timer for myself because at about 20 after, I want to make sure we go to the final four chapters, which we'll talk about. Uh, They're a little different in kind of a climax of this section and structured differently rather than being against a nation. It's, um, It's just different, so we'll talk about that. 
That's okay. We talked about, here's the list of nations that were involved with Isaiah's world and his day. And, oh. We talked about uh, the map of the empire of Assyria and the Middle East and how these nations interacted with Judah and Israel in some way during this period. And God would judge these nations in various ways. Uh, What was one of the ways we talked about last time? Kind of the main way we see. Through Babylon conquering them. Um, How about in the immediate kind of sites of Isaiah and Judah? Through Assyria's, yes. Yeah, so through uh, this, the Assyrian Empire that was at power at the time would come through and conquer a lot of these nations. But we see in the text that God claims this is his working. They're a rod in his hand. They're his axe. And so he would use this agent nation to judge these different nations, including Judah and Jerusalem, uh, who Isaiah was written to. So they're in the mix here. Um, and are judged in the same way because of their wickedness and because of the wickedness of the nations around them. Um, I'm not going to go through these key takeaways again, but this first one I'll touch on that a key theme seems to be in each of these oracles or burdens, some versions call the burden upon such and such nation. There's a, a message for them not to trust in themselves, but to go to Zion. And so there's, after these uh, judgments is an upshot of you need to look to Zion for security, whether it's you know your idols, your armies, your wise counselors for Egypt. Uh, none of these are going to bring you security that you're looking for. It's only in God and his kingdom. And so go, go to Zion. So we're going to jump in here and touch on several of these nations as we go along. Uh, Babylon is covered in chapters 13 and 14. And then again in chapter 21, and so you can see there Babylon on the map is east of Jerusalem. They are not at power at this time. They would rise to power after Isaiah's day. Uh, If let's read chapter, or it'll be about over 100 years after Isaiah's day. Let's read Isaiah 13, uh, just verse 6. Isaiah 13, verse 6, gives us kind of a definition in this context of what this day of the Lord is. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. So the day of the Lord in this context for this nation was something to be feared. Uh, Let's go down to verse 17. Behold, I'm going to stir up the Medes against them who will not value silver or take pleasure in gold, and their bows will mow down the young men. They will not even have compassion on the fruit of the womb, nor will their eye pity children. So he talks about here, I'll stir up the Medes against them. Um, As I mentioned earlier, the Medes were not a prominent power at this time. And so this prophecy was looking ahead to a time when Babylon would rise to power after Isaiah's day, and they would um, be the leading dominant nation that would come in and take over a lot of the land that the Assyrians had taken. 
And yet in verse 19, verse 19 reads, And Babylon, the beauty of the kingdoms, the glory of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. So the same idea is used that God with Assyria, that God will use Assyria as his agent, and then he will turn and destroy them um, through Babylon, actually. And so the same thing would happen to Babylon. And going through your mind here, you may be kind of thinking of Daniel chapter (laughs) 2. and the vision of the, the metal man image and the four kingdoms. And we'll kind of talk about that here in a little bit uh, as, as we get a little further on. Let's go to chapter 14, though. There's a message of hope after this uh, judgment on Babylon. Chapter 14, verse 1 and 2. When the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and again choose Israel and settle them in their own land, Then strangers will join them and attach themselves to the house of Jacob. The peoples will take them along and bring them to their place, and the house of Israel will possess them as an inheritance in the the land of the Lord, as male servants and female servants, and they will take their captors captive, and they will rule over their oppressors. This language here, um, it's probably catching your eye because of it's saying that Judah will go and take captive those who took them captive. They will rule over their possessors. I want to quickly jump to a little bit later when he's, similar language is used regarding Egypt. And that's in chapter 19, verse 17 and 18. So kind of hold your place in chapter 14 and go over to chapter 19, verse 17 and 18. And this is similar language in the context of this judgment on Egypt. Okay. Uh, Verse 17. The land of Judah will become a terror to Egypt, and everyone to whom it is mentioned will be in dread of it because of the purpose of the Lord of hosts, which he is purposing against them. In that day... Five cities of the land of Egypt will be speaking the language of Canaan and be swearing allegiance to the God of hosts. One will be called the city of destruction. So if you kind of jump back to chapter 14 there at the beginning, this language, it's, it's striking um, because it almost portray it, it does portray Judah as this really raising up a powerful army that's going to go out and whoop up on the nations. Um, it says they will take their captors captive. Now, when did this happen after, after the exile? We, we don't really see this happening. Um, so what's, what's going on here with this language? Um, and it, to be honest, it kind of confused me as I was reading along with this. Um, and I want us to jump over to a passage that I think kind of help, helps unlock our understanding of this. Um, so flip over to Amos, the book of Amos which he was a contemporary with Isaiah, like we've talked about. So Amos, uh, after Joel. Amos chapter 9. So here in Amos chapter 9, he's talking about 
Um, the context here is Yeah, let's start reading actually here in, in verse 7. Isaiah, Amos 9, verse 7. Are you not as the sons of Ethiopia to me, O sons of Israel, declares the Lord? So he's speaking here to Israel, the northern kingdom. That's who the book of Amos is addressed to, and they've turned their back on God. Have I not brought Israel up from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaphtor and the Armenians from Kerr? Um, let's jump down to verse 11. So um, in, in kind of the section from 8 to 10, he's talking about a judgment that's going to come upon the northern kingdom. But then he gives a message of hope in verse 11. It says, In that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord. So uh, Edom here is mentioned that uh, Israel will be raised up, the fallen booth or the fallen house of David will be restored, and that they may possess the remnant of Edom. Edom was a nation that was adjacent to them that was judged, and yet it wouldn't be fully destroyed. There would be a remnant that Israel would possess. So it's, it's very similar language here. So one more flip in this puzzle connecting of the dots. Because <laughs> one of our assumptions is that the New Testament writers uh, were operating under the assumption that the inspired writers of the New Testament help interpret make, and make clear the nature of the fulfillment of these prophecies. We talked about that in 1 Peter 1.10. 1 Peter 1.10 that says, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. So they would, they would say things. They may not fully understand what they were saying. Seeking to know what person or time or spirit of Christ was in them, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things, uh, which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you. So let's flip over to Acts chapter 15. From kids saying, who remembers what's in Acts 15? <laughs> Close. <laughs> Jerusalem meeting. So this was the, uh, the context here is Paul and Barnabas are meeting with the Jerusalem Church of Christ, apostles and elders. And they're debating through if the gospel should really be going out to the world of Gentiles as it had already been. And so in James... In Acts 15, quotes that Amos passage. Um, let's look at verse 14, Acts 15, 14. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. Taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With the words of the prophets, uh, with this, the words of the prophets agree. Just as is written, and then he'll quote the Amos passage. Uh, After these things, I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, 
says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. So this here doesn't say possess the remnant of Eden. It says, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Does anyone know why it doesn't say what the Old Testament says as we read it? Yes, they're quoting from a different translation. They're quoting from the Septuagint. What is the Septuagint? It's a, the, the, yeah, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is what a lot of the New Testament um, Jews and Christians had would have been the Septuagint. So they would have had the Greek translation, not the Hebrew, the Masoretic text, which is what we have and we're actually reading, you know, translated from the Hebrew. So, you know, just something there to be aware of. That'll come up later as we talk about New Testament quotations because they're going to read differently than the quote from Isaiah. But in this case of Amos, James applies that Amos passage to taking from among the Gentiles a people for God's name, for his name. And so to me, kind of bringing us back to this idea of possessing the nations, possessing the people, taking captive the captors. Um, Remember back in Isaiah chapter 2, it says they would beat their swords into plowshares. This isn't the kingdom that's going to go fight and overtake uh, in the same way that Judah and Israel did and David uh, before them. They would beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. So it's not with force of arms, but it's with, with force of thought. Uh, flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I know we're kind of seemingly off track from Isaiah, but this is kind of an important point. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10. And there's my alarm. <laughs> Let's read 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4 and 5. Uh, I'm sorry, I gave you the wrong book. 2 Corinthians 10. 2 Corinthians 10. Second Corinthians 10, verses uh, 3 through 5. This is Paul writing to the church at Corinth. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses, We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So Paul here talks about the nature of the kingdom. It's going to infiltrate infiltrate other nations and other kingdoms, but it's going to do it with the force of thought, with provoking people to obedience to God, not through force of arms. Um, And yet when you read the Old Testament at a surface level, it almost seems that way. And many in Jesus's day thought that, right? Um, Luke 17, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, when is the kingdom of God coming? You know, where are you you hiding this army that you're going to come and take back what's ours? And he says, um, you know, the kingdom of God is not going to come with signs. You're not going to be able to say, look here, look there. The kingdom of God is among you. It's you. It's your people that are going to be the kingdom, that are going to become the kingdom. So, Anything on that that thought process so far? Let's jump back to Isaiah, and we're not going to get nearly as far as I wanted. um, But that's okay. There's a short burden against Philistia. 
in chapter 14. And the sheet, the handout I gave you two weeks ago, talks about, based on history, when a lot of these judgments were fulfilled. And so I'm not going to go through that at this time. Um, In chapter 15 and 16, there's a burden judgment pronounced on Moab, which is just to the, the east of the Dead Sea from Judah. And I'm going to skip ahead once more to chapter 17. We're going to spend just a minute on here. Uh, Isaiah 17 is against Judah. Well, Damascus, um, really. Sorry, not not Judah. Uh, Damascus is the capital of Syria, which is to the north of Judah and Israel. So it's dealing with Syria and Syria would fall uh, in 732 BC when the Assyrians came through. There's an image here that I wanted to highlight, and let's read verses 6 and 7 of chapter 17 about Assyria. Yet the gleanings will be left in it like the shaking of an olive tree, two or three olives on the topmost bough, four or five on the Branches of a fruitful tree, declares the Lord, the God of Israel. So this image of this this shaking of an olive tree is used to talk about judgment upon Syria. Um, And I have a video here. I don't know if this is going to run. Maybe you can click on that, Chris. Or, uh, sorry, Mac. Maybe just click on the image there. Not playing. Okay, sorry. So this was a short video uh, showing these um, heavy equipment that comes up to the olive tree and grabs it by the base of the branch and shakes it. And there's this kind of upside-down umbrella that comes underneath and catches all the olives. And what happens is, you know, a large majority of the olives come off of this tree and actually saw this happen in Israel when we were there. And so these olive trees get shaken. But there's, there's some left up in the branch, right? And so you can come later. They weren't, they weren't ripe enough to fall. They weren't quite there yet. And that's the image given here for uh, Damascus. It's just two or three left. They weren't ripe for the harvest. They hadn't gone bad. And that's the idea. In this case, the harvest um, is, is the judgment. And those that hadn't gone bad yet that were left in the tree were uh, the good. And it, so it's this idea, again, of righteous remnant that's come, come up throughout Isaiah, um, the righteous remnant of God, that he will protect those who were faithful, that there were those who remained faithful to God, even through, in the case of Israel, their captivity, um, their release from exile, reestablishment in the land. Um, the northern tribes weren't, weren't ever really brought back, of course, like, uh, like Judah was under Cyrus. But um, even within Judah, there was a faithful remnant. And that's, um, don't really have time to talk about it here, but that's really who, you know, when Christ emerged on the scene and John the Baptist There were those that were almost on the edge of their seat waiting for God to bring about the Messiah, ready for this Messiah to come, that were seeking God. They weren't, um, they were faithful to him. 
And so th- this remnant would remain even of Israel that would uh, follow the Messiah and become part of his kingdom, the church. So we're not going to have time to touch on these other nations because I want to get to this last section briefly. And this section from 24 through 25, so 24, 25, 26, 27, it's kind of a climax of this entire section on the nations. And I've got here, as I was studying this, I noticed themes would pop up in chapters. So it talks about a ruined city or a desolate city in 24, and then it would talk about a strong city in 26. And so I started looking into, well, what's, is there some structure to this passage? And it, um, remember we talked about chiasm earlier in the class, and I don't want to overuse chiasm, uh, but I think this was another case that I, uh, someone suggested this chiasm structure. Do you remember what that was? Anybody? Chiasm? Yeah, the points kind of, uh, they pr- progress and they hit an apex and then they back out. So it's this got this symmetry to it and this kind of inverted symmetry. And so we, we see that here. Hopefully, it's not too hard to see. Um, but you have, you know, A goes with A prime at the end. They're about a destroyed land and there's a destroyed people talked about. And I tried to highlight in blue where it talked about the faithful of God versus those who had turned on God. Um, and so there's these parallel ideas that, that take place and seemingly take place in this section. Um, and they seem to climax at chapter 25 about Mount Zion. Um, so let's read, to get just a, li- a little bit of time in our context of this, this section, let's read 24, 1 through 6. Behold, the Lord lays the earth waste, devastates it, distorts its surface, and scatters its inhabitants. And the people will be like the priest, the servant like his master, the maid like her mistress, the buyer like the seller, the lender like the borrower, the creditor like the debtor. The earth will be completely laid waste and completely despoiled, for the Lord God has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers, the world fades and withers, the exalted of the people of earth fade away. The earth is also polluted by its inhabitants, for they transgressed laws, violated statutes, broke the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and those who live in it are held guilty. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men are left. Already very difficult, right? (laughs) Um, I forgot to mention this section. You'll hear the term little apocalypse or Isaiah's apocalypse referring to the section, and that's because it kind of reads like a mini-revelation, and a lot of the same elements from Revelation are in these chapters. And I actually went through and kind of compared. I didn't print this out for everybody, but if you're, you do like to kind of study in detail Revelation, I tried to put images that are found in both here and reference those in Isaiah and Revelation, the righteous remnant, a curse on the land, a ruined city, 
Um, Leviathan being slain is talked about in Isaiah. It brings to mind uh, Revelation 20. Um, God threshing, a final trumpet blown. And so you see, these will be up here if you would like one. Uh, There's a lot of these images, and so it's very much apocalyptic. We talked about apocalyptic and how images are almost shown one after the other like a, a movie playing, directing your attention from one thought to the next thought. So this this first section we read about the earth mourning and withering that, you know, the surface uh, is, it distorts the surface and it scatters its inhabitants. Um, like, we, like the other language, apocalyptic language, I don't think we should necessarily read this literally. Um, for one, the very first verse, behold, the Lord, the Lord lays the earth waste, devastates it, distorts its surface and scatters its inhabitants. So if the earth physically is completely laid waste and the inhabitants are scattered from the earth, where are they going to go? I mean, are they going to go to Mars? Or It doesn't, it doesn't make sense that way. Um, and even down in verse 6, a few men are left. Well, it doesn't sound like, you know, what we understand from the New Testament about a, a final end of time judgment where those who, you know, will be caught up with the Lord before the elements are melted with fervent heat, Second Peter 3. So there, there's evidence, there's pieces here that lend, lend me to believe this isn't talking about a final end of time judgment. Um, another piece that kind of helped me understand this is the, the word earth in the Hebrew, and I'm not a Hebrew scholar at all, but uh, the, wor- the word for earth there means, is eretz, and it, means, it can mean land or earth. And it's really a contextual decision and a translator's call. So someone, when they translated this, decided, well, this word is earth, and this word is land. But behold, the Lord lays the land waste. Could have been appropriate there. Um, And really, a lot of these cases, and I'm not necessarily saying every case must be land, but there's cases where land seems to fit a little better than earth, than a global, what we think of as the entire global uh, nature of the earth. Um, and then, of course, uh, where it says that the, the, the earth, um, sorry, I was looking for the verse, shakes back and forth as a drunkard. Uh, it's figurative language again. And this judgment here, verse 6, or excuse me, verse 5 the, the earth or the land is polluted by its inhabitants. It almost brings back to mind Leviticus 18, where uh, Moses is told that those who are in the land of Canaan have polluted it um, in Leviticus 18, 24, and 25. They've transgressed laws, violated statutes, broke the everlasting covenant. It's hard exactly to tell what that is, whether that's a covenant with man back at the garden or covenant with Noah. But I tend to read it as the covenant that God made with his people in Deuteronomy 28 and the blessings and the cursings, the covenant blessings and the cursings that would come upon the people. Um, so again, this is, this is difficult to know if this is talking about Judah that would be judged through the exile, if this is uh, national Israel that would ultimately be judged you know, later through the Roman conquering and destruction, or uh, a a general kind of judgment that would come upon the people. Um, But I I tend to think this is not an end-of-time future 
thing, that it, it has a past fulfillment to it. I want to read a quote on this entire section, kind of step back just a little bit because I kind of dove in there, but I want to um, give a context for this section, a summary that I thought was really good. Dr. Constable's notes on Isaiah says that regarding this Isaiah's apocalypse, the theme of this section is the triumph triumph of God over his enemies on behalf of his people. Isaiah developed this scene by picturing the destruction of one city, the city of chaos, in chapter 24, verse 10, which is, uh, he says, it's the city of man, i.e. the whole world. So he views that as kind of a a figurative means to say that this is the man-made cities, this is the man-made empire that's being judged. And the establishment of another city, Mount Zion, Jerusalem, the city of God, These two cities are the focal points of the judgment and the restoration that Isaiah alluded to in the preceding oracles that we just went through. So he's pointing these nations to Zion. And here he describes the establishment of the strong city of Zion. He goes on, as the city of man falls under divine judgment, the songs of God, uh, excuse me, the songs of God neglected people disappear. And as the city of God appears, the songs of the redeemed swell. God used these two cities as symbols uh, in this section of text. And so I want to spend just a few more minutes um, talking about this apex section that I think is uh, really the, the draw up of this, this whole section. And that is in chapter 25. And let's, let's actually start on 24, verse 23. Isaiah 24, verse 23. Then the moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. That, may bring, that idea of elders might bring to mind Revelation 4.4 talks about elders in, uh, in heaven. And so he says the sun and the moon are going to be ashamed because of the, the brightness of the glory of the kingdom is going to overshadow even the sun and the moon uh, when the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Let's go into chapter 25. Verse 2, For you have made a city into a heap, a fortified city into a ruin, A palace of strangers is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, a strong people will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. For you have been a defense for the helpless, a defense for the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a rainstorm against a wall. Like heat is in drought, you subdue the uproar of aliens like heat by the shadow of a cloud, uh, the song of the ruthless is silenced. Let's continue here. So this section from verse 6 down to verse 9 is really rich, and it may be my favorite little section in the book of Isaiah, honestly. Um, But let's continue reading. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, 
choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine. And on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. He will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God, for whom we have waited, that he might save us. This is the Lord of whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. So there's a lot here to unpack. Um, And I didn't mention this up front. I failed to mention this, but part of why I connect all of these chapters together is the repeated use of in that day. So you see from one image to the next, the repeated term in that day, this will happen. In that day, this will happen. And so there's no break in uh, thought or context of this really, this whole section. It's looking forward to a day. And I would suggest that it's looking ahead to the first coming of Christ, what Christ did when he came in his ministry, in his death, in his resurrection, and the establishment of the kingdom. Um, this idea of the lavish banquet brings to mind Matthew chapter 8 and verse 10. Uh, this is after the centurion has come, a Roman centurion, not a Jew, has come to Jesus and says, will you hear, heal my servant? And uh, you have the authority to do it. Just speak the word. And Jesus says, great is your faith. Your faith is greater than, any, uh, than um, anyone else in the land. And I've, I've not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out into outer darkness, and that, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what are they doing reclining around a table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom? I think it's this image of this banquet, this messianic banquet. Um, I think it's a, a figure of, of a relationship that we have with Christ and the church, and that... It, it will be further fulfilled in its fullness um, after this life is over. But I think the sense is that we're part of this, this relationship, this banquet scene that's described here is what his church will have with him. And it will uh, be drawn from, from all nations, will come into the kingdom. Verse 7, And on this mountain he will swallow up the covering, which is over all people's covering over all nations. Um, This may bring to mind several passages, actually. Uh, Do do any come to mind talking about my version actually says veil that's over the nations or that's over the people? To me, it brought to mind, if if you want to flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, with regard to the Jew, Second Corinthians chapter 3. Let's read Second Corinthians three fourteen through 16. So Paul here is, oh, let's actually start in verse 13. Uh, let's, it's the middle of a sentence. So let's start in 12. 
1 Corinthians 3, verse 12. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 12. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away, but their minds were hardened. For until this very day, at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it was removed in Christ. That's regarding the Jew, those who were not able to see the Messiah. Flip over to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. For the Gentile, Ephesians 4 verse 18. Verse 17. Ephesians 4 verse 17. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their hearts. So they were walking walking in darkness. They were darkened in their understanding. And this idea of removing this veil, the veil being pulled off, it could have a couple meanings. One of them could be a veil being pulled off of one who's dead and kind of bringing them to life, or it could be pulling back the darkness to reveal the light uh, that would come through Christ and how when one comes to Christ, that veil is brought back, that they're pulled back, that they're able to see the light, to see God and come to him. Um, Flipping back to Isaiah, I know we're about to run out of time here. Isaiah chapter 60 Isaiah chapter 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light. And that really takes us back to Isaiah chapter 2 that says um, that that nations will be drawn into the kingdom. Um, so the last point I want to touch on here is this idea of destroying death for all time. Isaiah 25, back to chapter 25 here in the, the apex of this section. Verse 8, he will swallow up death for all time and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. Um, does anywhere recognize where that was quoted, by the way? He will swallow up death. Yes, 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter, Paul quotes this passage uh, that, about swallowing up death and um, destroying death, as another translation said. And so there's a sense in which um, Paul says when the immortal put, mortality puts on, excuse me, when the mortal puts on immortality, that will happen. And yet here, it's about uh, the coming of Christ and what he did in the cross and in his resurrection. And I've got verses here that talk about how the abolishing death of death occurred uh, in the past from the time this was written, that Christ has abolished death, um, that he tasted of death for everyone, and that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. And so I think that's a very present reality for us that through Christ's work on the cross that he, um, that Satan was not able to thwart the divine plan of God, that, that 
Christ was able to destroy that death that had come upon man uh, through his own work. So I appreciate your attention. That's all we have time for tonight. And we'll be going into the next section next week. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.